Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast, Dick to D. In this episode, I had a chance to sit down with former Wake Forest basketball player, Jim DeVore Carter. Jim came to Wake Forest to play basketball, but ended up being a part of history. He shares the story of his trailblazing journey, Wake Forest history and in integrating intercollegiate athletics, plus much, much more. Take a listen. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, go Deeks. So, Mr. Carter, since this is your first time on <laughs> Deke to Deke, uh, kind of share with Deke and Nation a little bit about your upbringing and what it was like and kind of paint a picture of what your life was like in, in the uh, mid to late 40s and 50s and growing up. Well, I'm a New York City born individual. I was born in Queens, New York, and most of my living was in the Northeast. I lived in New York City and Queens. Then I lived on a farm upstate New York, up in the Catskill area, they call it. I lived on a farm for five years. We had a 150 acre farm. I milked the cows, slopped the hogs, had chickens, horses, all of that was a great life. And then in my early teen years, we moved down to Angwin, New Jersey, which was back into the city life. And I was there until my 11th year in high school. At that point, the family moved to Connecticut. And each of those experiences were very gross situations for me. I learned to do, deal with different people, different environments. And I was able to conduct myself in a way that got me acceptance, also the results I needed. So it was a good orientation to different types of people. New York City was a mixed environment, even though it wasn't as racial as the South, there was separation of, of cultures, but you could move freely from situation to situation. Um, but in upstate New York, we were the only black family. So I had a cultural shock there. Then my sophomore year in high school, I went to a private school. I was the only black in the school. So before I got to wake, I started getting mixed exposures to being within full black environments, mixed environments, and then being the only black environments. And it was a good growth for me. Living on the farm was a great experience. You get a different life value when you do that. And I sh I'm sure you and I have spoken in the past and you had some of those similar experiences also. So talking about those experiences that you had, those diverse experiences, I mean, you're talking about growing up in the congestion of New York City and Queens, but then moving out to uh, the farm in upstate New York. At what point did basketball or sports in general begin to play a part in your life? In junior high school, what we what they call middle school now, the seventh grade, we had in our junior high years, we went seventh, eighth, and ninth. So we started playing football, basketball, organized sports. Prior to that, it was just Babe Ruth baseball, and we'd play on local teams. But in middle school, we started playing on the middle on the school teams. And so I got exposure to baseball, football, basketball, and track. And then those back in the old days. You played three sports. In the fall, you would play football. In the winter, you'd play basketball. In the spring, you'd play the baseball or on track. So I did all four of those basically in middle school. As I got into my high school years, it would reduce to football, basketball, and track mostly. So what took you down the lane to take basketball more seriously than the other two sports? When I moved 
to Connecticut my senior in high school. I had a good experience in my junior year playing football and my sophomore year also. My senior year, the school didn't have a football team. So I was pushed out of football into more focus on basketball. And then I played, ran some indoor track also. But basketball became my dominant sports consideration. It's interesting that you shared that story of how you got into uh, basketball because uh, the high school didn't offer football. I had a conversation uh, a few months back where I interviewed Randolph Childress, and he mm -hmm. talked about he was into football. That was his sport, and, and because he got into basketball or took it more seriously because they his parents had moved and he had missed the deadline to sign up for football. And it's just interesting this, the the way that we're led into or get into different sports. So with that, uh, when you were playing ball, I mean, you're talking about New York City during that time. I mean, some great players. Talk about what it was like to play basketball during that era and some of the other great players from not just that era, but from New York City, period. I lived in Angwin, New Jersey, most of my high school years up okay. until my senior year. And Angwin was a mixed population. So we had great local players there, but guys would come over from New York City and back then they weren't as well known. So I'm talking 1962, 63 into 64. So Jabbar hadn't made a big name yet. He was still a young fellow, but you had guys coming over, Pee Wee Kirkland, um, helicopter they called one of the guys so you had guys from new york and it was a big reputation thing at the time the guys from new york are coming let's go out to the park see if we can get a run and in many cases new york city played a harder kind of ball than where i was living in new jersey it was just a rougher environment but you could go to newark new jersey and find the same level of ball players there i can't go back now and tell you who a lot of the guys were <clears throat> but for example al adams was out of Newark, New Jersey. And I was known to be a real rough ball player all the years he played out on the West Coast for, um, I guess it was the Warriors at the time, Golden State. I'm not sure, maybe there was San Francisco Warriors back then. But the New York City ball players were, it was just a different caliber of ball. And it was more, I'd almost want to say hard knocks basketball. But if you were mm -hmm. a skilled player, you could play with any of the guys out there. And if you had a little bit of game, a halfway decent jump shot, you could handle a little bit. They'd give you a run. Now, you know the way it is in the park. You lose, you sit down. So you'd <laughs> yeah. find hard to stay on the court because there'd be a long waiting list of people waiting for the next run. But I didn't go into the city much at that time. I came up when my parents said, no, you can go to city to our offices to work. But New York still had an edge of danger about it if you didn't live in New York. And oddly enough, in my later years, when I was in college in Richmond, Virginia, I went to school with guys who were from New York City who had never been to 42nd Street. And you start to find out, even though people are from a certain environment, they're not always exposed to the total environment. And as we go further, I'll talk about the exposure at Wake Forest and the exposure in the South for me that was altogether different, but altogether familiar also. Well, I think that's a great segue into uh the next question I have for you, which is I want to talk about your connection to Wake Forest and uh, the importance of what you are able to do in this very special group of people uh, that you are very close with at Wake Forest. But let's kind of paint a picture, if you don't mind, for Deacon Nation and talk about your special connection to Wake Forest and how 
Wake Forest even came on your radar as a kid playing basketball in New Jersey uh, during that time period of the, the, the 50s and 60s? I had a good senior year in high school. I was all county up in my area, and I had some offers to go to different colleges. But my mother had a personal friend who was a business associate, Arthur Buddy Gist. And Buddy was from Greensboro, and he had a connection to the Tribble family. I don't know the exact connection, how they knew each other, but Buddy and I were talking one day through my mother, and he said, well, Jim, I know you want to play ball. Have you thought about Wake Forest? And I said, where is Wake Forest? And Buddy said, well, it's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and they're looking to do some things with integration. And would you be interested in giving it a look? I said, sure. So Buddy and I hopped into his Cadillac. It was probably a 64 because he was a car dealer at the time. And we drove down to Winston-Salem. And the first place we stopped was at his mother's home. And I'm not sure if it was the Magnolia House or not, but Buddy's family were the proprietors of Magnolia House. And what it was, it was a rest stop between Atlanta and Richmond where black talent could go. The hotels wouldn't take black talent at the time. So many of your great musicians and a lot of your athletes would stay at the Magnolia House. And so Buddy knew a lot of those people, but also he knew the Tribble family. So after we left the Magnolia House, we drove over to, over to Winston-Salem and Buddy and I went up to Dr. Tribble's home on campus. And I got an opportunity to meet Dr. Tribble. And we sat in the living room. I mean, I felt right at home because I was from New York. So this was not foreign to me being anybody's house anywhere. I had this entitlement where I felt I could go anywhere. I wasn't understanding the Southern understanding of where we could go totally. And I sat and talked with Dr. Trimble and I'll tell you more about him later and the impact he had on me, but he was very forthright. He said, Jim, we're trying something, just an experiment. Got a couple of guys coming in from the South who are gonna play football and I know you're interested in basketball and it's an experiment and everybody's not gonna like you, but would you be willing to give it a try if we're willing to support you in some ways? And he seemed like a good gentleman at the time. He was much younger than I am now, but back then he was a very senior person, a scholar. And I said, absolutely, I'll give it a shot, I'll come south. So arrangements were made through Buddy Gist, through Dr. Tribble, and I ended up in Wake Forest. And he said, what we'd like you to do, Jim, is come to summer school first, just to get comfortable with the environment. So in July of 64, I came down to Wake Forest. And at the time, I was only the black I knew matriculating at Wake Forest. Well, you talk to about summer school. But once again, pardon me. No, I, I was just saying you were talking about 1964. Yes. And so this was no you, you weren't coming to just on some regular recruiting visit. And, you know, what was 1964 Winston-Salem like? you what 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 did you see in Winston Salem and Wake Forest the campus as you and the university well during that summer I just was sequestered at Wake Forest I didn't go into Winston Salem even though I had family from Winston Salem my mother had lived there for a couple of years I didn't know the family there so I was just on campus I think it was like a four week or five week summer program and at that time, the only person I knew I had met Butch Henry in Greensboro, who I was staying at the guest house, Butch and I met in the park, we played a little bit of ball. So I got to know Butch even before we got together at Wake in the fall. But Wake was fine with me. I would go to some of the frat houses and watch TV with the guys. Nobody was using the N word with me. I don't know if they thought I was more dangerous than I looked, but it was very <laughs> easy for me to get comfortable. 
I didn't feel the tension, but Dr. Tribble had kind of prepped me. He said, and I told you this before, he said, Jim, everybody's not going to like you. And I said, everybody in my house doesn't like me either, but I can deal with that as long as they approach me, you know, respectfully. So I had a real good experience. It wasn't like I was the only black and sitting there, but I got to know some of the staff who worked there, the ladies who took care of the rooms, the people who worked in the cafeteria, some of the men who worked in maintenance. And I would talk to them just like regular folks because I was from New York. And then you're from, when you're from New York, you talk to everybody. You feel entitled. So my experience in the summertime was just me being there. And I made friends with whatever white guys were there were willing to make friends with me. I want to talk about what you did and what you were a part of. Uh, mm-hmm. I was able to learn more about the story through the establishment of the Trailblazer Award kind of share with Deacon, will you share with Deacon Nation what you were doing in terms of breaking barriers, not just, you know, now we hear the word integrating and, you know, we don't really see the full impact or we don't really understand the full impact of it. Kind of paint a picture of what you guys were doing. And when I say guys, I mean, kind of lay out who else were there with you. I, okay. I, I've heard how you described it, <laughs> but I want you to share with Deacon Nation that 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 relationship and what you guys are doing there. Well, let me tell Deacon Nation this. Dr. Harold Tribble and the board members, whoever decided they were going to take this step to bring Black athletes to Wake Forest, they had had one experience with Ed Reynolds. I think he came there in 62. He had come out of Shaw University, and he was an African. He wasn't a local Black guy. He was an African who came to the U.S., went to one college, a historically black college for two years, and they brought him in as I've looked back at the history as a scholar. When they brought Butch, Grant, Smitty, and me there, we were coming to really be athletes. But we were Americans, so it was a different culture. And we bonded immediately. I've told you a story about how I met Grant and I met Butch in the park, so we kind of knew each other. And Smitty was from Greenville, South Carolina. But since we were the only four Blacks that we knew of who were matriculating full-time Black students at Wake Forest University, we bonded immediately. And we found a comfort with each other, whether it was in the dorm room. Butch and I had white roommates. Butch's roommate was Barry Hickman. He was from Boston. My roommate was Danny Cooper. Danny was from Florida. And I remember the first time Danny came there and his parents saw I was his roommate. Their eyes got real big. (laughs) (laughs) Because being from Florida, he had no black experience. So a lot of the students there were just not accustomed to seeing black people familiarized in their environment. It wasn't culture shock to me, but it was culture shock to them. But having Butch and Smitty and Grant there, there was a security level of knowing your boys were there with you. You know, we all thought we were halfway tough. None of us were really tough other than Grant and Smitty and Butch. I was more a charm kind of guy, but (laughs) there was security in numbers with the four of us. And then there were a number of white students who embraced us immediately, who were willing to be seen with us, who would sit at the table with us in the cafeteria, who would pick up ball in the gym, go to gym class, sit in chapel next to us. Wake was ahead of its time. You know, being a private college, they didn't have to be dictated by the state guidelines so Dr. Trivlin, whoever the group was that made the decision, they say the environment is changing in America. 
racially, culturally, and individually, and we're going to take some steps to be different. So moving from Wake Forest to Winston-Salem was a big move, but bringing in blacks, a black student and, a, and black athletes was really foretelling what the future was going to be. And those who were part of Wake then and those who are part of Wake now, I don't see it spoken to enough. Um, Bear Bryant said he, at Alabama said, I won't have any black players until a couple of them played against him and he got some. Um, the coach in Kentucky where Pat Riley played when Texas Western, the black team beat Kentucky. Adolph Roop had said before, I won't have any black athletes until Wake Forest had some black athletes, then Duke and UNC and State and all these big schools. Because remember, Wake is a, is a little brother. It's 5,000 people. All these schools were 40, 50,000 people, but didn't have the heart that the Deacons had, that Dr. Tribble and people who managed Wake Forest had at that time. And I'm very proud to be able to talk about it, even though I was only there for one year, there was a lot happening. Yeah. Well, how does it feel when you look back? And, well, really not look back, but just when you look around and college athletics and the NBA and you see players that came after you playing in the South. Again, you're a part of that group that helped integrate collegiate athletics in the South, South of the Mason-Dixon line. So when you look at the players at Kentucky, the players at Carolina, the players at Wake that are able to come in after you were a part of help kicking that door down. How does that feel when you reflect back on those moments? Well, it feels good that I was part of Wake Forest. I still tell people that was my first college experience. I feel good having had a personal conversation with Dr. Tribble. I would see Dr. Tribble walking across campus. He would say, hi, Jim. And a whole bunch of black, white students would walk across campus. He had no idea who they were. Even <laughs> though they were good students, there was a specialness that the four of us felt because we were easily identifiable. When I see Chris Paul playing for Phoenix right now, and I see what Tim Duncan did over the years, I see that Danny Manning was the coach at Wake for a number of years, even though his record wasn't as outstanding as I would like to have seen it. Wake, once again, gave a lot of these people a good experience. Wasn't your coach, Coach Caldwell? Yep, yeah. Coach Tim Caldwell, NBA, first African-American uh, I mean, head coach. coach. Yeah. But Wake gave a number of people opportunities that other schools just weren't giving them. And they were crit criticized for it. They were scrutinized about it. But, you know, it was very easy for UNC or State to bring in, you know, Charlie Davis to Wake. Charlie came to Wake. But mm -hmm. um, who came to State? It was, Char it was uh, Charlie Scott. Scott at Carolina. Yeah, it was easy yep. for State to bring in Charlie Scott and Duke to bring in other players at the time. Once Wake had set the table. You know, number two is a lot easier than number one. <laughs> if he is the head that wears the crown. They say a second marriage is easier than the first. I don't know if that's true. I'm, I'm still not going to test that theory. I don't want to test that theory. You really don't want to. But number one sets the table for everybody. All these schools now who have all these great black athletes are following in Wake Forest's footsteps. It's really an important conversation to have that's not spoken about enough. Just the fact you do the Deke to Deke podcast, it's a statement you're representing a, an institution with 5,000 students. They're still Division I in college athletics. They have a med school, they have a, a law you know, school, they have all the schools that the big time universities have. They don't have all the same endowments, but they do pretty well. 
I was reading something not too long ago where Dr. Tribble made a deal with the Reynolds family to give a certain amount of money early on that helped Wake move to Winston-Salem and do mm -hmm. other things. But once again, Dr. Tribble had foresight that a lot of people didn't. If you read up on his history, he was international. He had exposures to the North, even though he was born in the South, he wasn't crippled by Southern thinking. That's why his thinking was so broad about what to do with Wake. And it wasn't just him, but he, he was in the bullseye to a lot of these people. Everybody at Wake didn't like me, even in the uh, professorships. I could tell they had a little edge about them, but I was from New York. We didn't care about edge. We had an edge from New York. So, but we knew we were safe also. I never felt unsafe the whole time I was there. That's awesome. The, I want to uh, see if I could get you to uh, share with Deacon Nation. You talk about, you mentioned some other names. You mentioned uh, Smitty Butch and Bob Grant. Uh, because of the impact of what the four of you did, kind of share with Deacon Nation those three other names. So we talked about Bob Grant. I uh, had a chance to interview him. Uh, that that was awesome. And Kenneth Butch Henry. And who was the other person? Uh William Smith. William, William Smith. William Smith. Yeah. Uh, those call three him Dr. Smith now. I'm sorry, yeah, Doc, Dr. Smith. Yeah. Uh, Smithy was from Greenville, South Carolina. He was a big-time quarterback and running back in high school. Uh, they recruited him because all the schools, the historically black college, was recruiting him. But they hadn't advanced enough to let him think he could play quarterback as a black individual. But he came to Wake. And he wasn't treated as well as some of the other players were treated, which was out of Greensboro. He was a quarterback also in high school, but he was made a wide receiver and a defensive back. Because once again, at that time, a lot of the white coaches and the white populace didn't think blacks could play quarterback. You know, when Doug Williams finally won the Super Bowl, oh, they said black guys can play quarterback. Or when some of these other great linebackers started making a stance as you as a black linebacker at Wake. They didn't think then black guys, black students, black athletes could play linebacker quarterback. So Butch came in as a highly tutored quarterback. So did Smitty. Bob Grant came from Jacksonville, North Carolina. He grew up on basically the Marine base. I think you'll see a lot of that Camp Lejeune stuff out mm -hmm. here now coming. That's where Grant developed. And Grant came to Wake Forest with one goal in mind to go into the NFL. And he came prepared for it too. Not only did he look the part, he played the part. But these were also young men, as was I, who felt a certain entitlement that we belonged and we had a right to participate at this level. We were given certain skill sets and certain intellect where we feel the entitlement as all the white students and players felt too. And we proceeded accordingly. And we could also demonstrate those skills and that intellect in other environments that were taking place on campus too. But they were great guys and tough guys, too. I was the charm guy. Bob was the roughest of the group. Smitty was a tough guy, too. And Butch was smooth as silk. Um, but we each brought a characteristic to the environment. And in bringing that, we brought a certain strength that the others could share with, too. So uh, I want to talk about, I want to shift gears a little bit. And you talked about how you got to Wake Forest. And it was through relationships uh, with your mother. That Correct. that was how the introduction happened. Kind of share with Deacon Nation your mother's story and the significance of the role that she's played in international integration, not just, uh, you know, a region of the U.S., but she, she had a major part in internationally breaking barriers. 
Absolutely. My mother was originally from Edgefield, South Carolina. When she was 13, she moved to Winston-Salem, where she lived, I think, until she was 14 or 15 with some relatives. And then she moved to New York City after that. She lived with two of our aunts in New York City, but my mother was of a mindset. She was as good as anybody, not necessarily better, but as good as. And she was a light-skinned woman of color. So in many cases, people didn't know what she was. So she walked around like she was entitled once again to be anywhere. And this is an important word, entitlement. To have good self-esteem and good confidence, you have to feel you're entitled to participate. Your buddy Bob Grant from Wake Forest said to me one time, he said, Jimbo, because that's what he called me. He said, Jimbo, I'm not waiting for the level playing field. I'm just waiting for them to make me on the field and all hell is going to break loose because I'm on the field. And my mother had the same mentality of entitlement. So she came to New York. She got a job or she applied for a job at the post office. And the post office said, they will put down your race. And she put down American. They said, no, you got to put down what color you are. She said, I'm American. So they wouldn't hire her. And she had a couple of those encounters, but she was able to get a, a, a position at the Barbizon School. No, not the Barbizon. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the um, modeling school where she went. It'll come to me in a moment. But they didn't know she was Black at the time. So she got all the information. And what she did is came back to the community and shared that. Then she started a modeling school and a modeling agency. And she developed individuals. She went to Europe to the Cannes Film Festival and won it twice with women of color. The third time she went, they wouldn't give it to her. They said, you won it two years in a row. We got to let some of the white females win also. But she had this sense of integration was important. Sharing the culture was important. Developing her children and those around her was important with a mindset that we're entitled and we're equal to everybody. But you've got to work for that equality. I'll talk to you as a football player. You can say you're a linebacker, but you got to take the bruises that go with it when you were playing. Mm -hmm. Everybody who wants to be a linebacker can't take the beating. <laughs> that's, a, that's part of being a linebacker. So I was a wide receiver and a running back. That was painful too, but not as painful as being a linebacker. But my mother's mentality was that we have to set equality standards in many different ways. Dr. Tribble did it in an educational institution. My mother did it in a presentation in a charm school and a modeling thing, how we better developed our presentation skills, our communication skills, our effective networking skills where people would look at us and say, yes, they can participate. Yes, they can be part of this. And to some degree, they'd overlook that old-fashioned racist separation mentality. But it took work, and people like my mother and Dr. Tribble and those who were at Wake Forest mm -hmm. who bought into the fact that America was changing. Now, you and I know America hasn't changed totally. We see politically now there's some of the same foolishness going on. We can see with women's rights there's some of the same foolishness going on. It's not just racial, but people mm -hmm. in power that Dr. William Jones once said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And we've got to be very careful who we put in power. We we're very fortunate that Wake Forest had people in power who were willing to make an exception, to make a change and include people who deserved and earned an opportunity to be part of it. So my mother worked for that. She told everybody, if you want to be part of the change, you've got to live up to it. You've got to get the education. You've got to get the training. But more importantly, you've got to prepare yourself. You've got to get out here and do the work that's part of all of it. When you talk about the great athletes from Wake Forest, they were hardworking guys. Chris Paul is from Wake Forest, the town, and he did the work at Wake Forest, the school, to develop into an NBA player. Tim Duncan, Childress, Muggsy Bogues, all of these guys did the work. 
it wasn't just because of their color it was because of they did the work that took them to the next level yes that that is awesome i mean you and i we had a chance to meet a little over a year ago right at a year ago and after learning of your story and getting to know you it just was very fascinating to me what you were a part of uh at wake forest and, and even beyond if you don't mind kind of talk about what it was that in 1964 uh, 1965 that era when you were at wake forest and you talked about feeling welcome you talked about dr tribble who were some other people that you can reflect on that really helped you kind of deal with that time while you were at Wake, considering what you had to shoulder? Uh, there were some players, varsity players, who were very welcoming. Brian Piccolo was a senior at Wake at the time. And the story of Brian, he was All-American. I think he led the nation in rushing that year. He wasn't drafted by Chicago, but if you look at the Brian Piccolo story, you know, with Gail Sayers and that relationship, Brian was a good old guy from Florida. And even though I was a freshman, Brian would talk to you like you were a good guy. Ronnie Watts was on the basketball team. Uh, Paul, I think it was Paul Long was on the team also. He had transferred from Virginia Tech. But these were quality athletes. They were playing for Bones McKinney at the time. Billy Packer was the freshman coach. But these were guys who were at the school. And then there were just guys who were non-athletic who just wanted to meet some black guys. They just, what is it like to be black? Tell me what the difference is. How do you feel? What do you like to eat? What do you, let's hear some of your music. <laughs> Just generic students who wanted to have a firsthand experience where they felt safe and it was a good environment. Remember, Wake mm -hmm. was a private school, so they could create terms of relationships that some of the state schools couldn't create. Uh, Herm Gilliam, who was at in high school in Winston-Salem at the time, um, I forget, I forget the name of the school now, but he was highly recruited by Wake. He ended up going to Purdue, I believe, or one of the Midwest schools. But Herman used to come, we'd play in the gym. He'd bring Earl Monroe and some of the guys from Winston-Salem State at the time over and they'd be playing in the gym. We'd get some good runs going. Um, so Wake was opening and they were welcoming as a, an institution. Not everybody, but the institution was welcoming. So I had nothing but good experiences. I wish I could tell you some bad <laughs> time I had. I didn't have those. Um, uh, oh, you share, you and I have had some personal conversations and you've shared some really good times. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> great. And even 60 years later, almost 60 years, I still reflect on those good times. Grant and I still talk. Smitty and I still talk. We're still friends. Um, I haven't been able to keep in touch with Butch. I think he has some health issues that we discussed during the Trailblazer Awards, why he wasn't there. Um, but that relationship maintained throughout our lives. And we still have this. I talked to Bob this week. Matter of fact, last week was his birthday. I talked to him on his birthday. Um, but it was good stuff. There are environments that can change the course of more than just the individual, but the course of the environment. And Wade did that for the South below the Mason-Dixon line. When people said they want to push short, oh, it wasn't a big deal. All these schools followed in Wake's footsteps. None of them had black guys playing before Wake did that. And even in the freshman year for Butch and Grant and Smitty and me, those schools, I don't even know which ones had freshman black players, but on the varsity, back then freshmen couldn't play varsity, but they followed in Wake's footsteps. It's not as talked about by Wake as I believe it should be because it changed the culture of the South. 
because all those big universities have all these big time lawyers and doctors and congressmen who make decisions now for the country. And they were affected by what Wake Forest did back in the 60s and 70s. You talked about the Trailblazer Award and, you know, for Deacon Nation, uh, you know, the Trailblazer Award was an award that was established in the name of Kenneth Butch Henry that you talked about and also Robert Bob Grant. And they were the first two to integrate intercollegiate sports in the South. And we established the award. And so you were back to be a part of that last year. And I want to talk about, if you don't mind sharing, what it felt like to be back and to be a part of Wake Forest sharing the story of its progressive past and honoring to and, and honoring two African Americans that were the pillars and the foundation of uh, of continued progressive evolution of the of the institution. Uh, in my mind, I said it's about time that Wake and those individuals got the recognition they deserve. I was very uplifted to see Dr. Wente, to see Dr. Hooks, who was the athletic director, you know, 60 years ago, to see um, Bob and Butch's coach there. Um, what's the coach's last name? Coach? Um, it's not Tate. It just escapes me right now. Tate. But just talking to him, how vibrant he was. You know, I guess he's in his 90s now, but still bringing that feeling. And all the people who came to support that function, that Trailblazer Award, to look at guys who really set the standard for it, to say this is important, to have Dr. Wente's pose with Bob and me, and me in honor of Butch, in a photo to say these were men who were part of what we established almost 60 years ago. And it was very uplifting. And it's so timely now because there's still a struggle taking place that people need to know what happened then and why isn't more being done now? And Wake is still doing some great things now. Mm -hmm. That alone is a statement that other schools still aren't making. You know, once again, Wake is the little brother, 5,000 students. You got these schools with 50,000 students and half of the athletic teams are black and they still don't make that statement. They still wanna be what they think they've always been. You know, when Jimmy Ray went to Michigan, um, he still came out of Wake, didn't he? Uh, no, I think he, I'm not sure. If, Did he I don't go know if right he, to Michigan? I think he went right to Michigan State. Michigan or he, Michigan He came State. out of uh, out of Fayetteville, but, out of uh, yeah, E.E. Smith High still School. Was yeah. a statement person with Bob Grant. Yeah, he was there at the Trailblazer Award. Yep. Yeah, they were recru recruiting, uh, as was Coach Colwell, you know. Yep. A number of the people who came through that environment, but to some degree years later. But, um, it was uplifting to see them doing something. Was it late? Better late than never, but maybe it was timely to do it now. I'm glad Bob is still around. I wish Smitty had have been there and Butch was able to come, but I was glad to see it happen. I'm glad to say I was there also in the beginning, not just yeah. near the latter part, but in the beginning. So as we were reflecting uh, on that time, that Trailblazer Award, is there a time between where the four of you were together? Is there a moment during that time that stands out to you the most? You talked about the relationship, how close you are. And I know how close you could be, that that bond with with teammates, even at, you know from that freshman year. What was that like? Talk about a moment that stood out with 
the four of you guys? There were a number of moments. Uh, we used to hitchhike from Winston to Greensboro because Butch was from Greensboro. The four of us would get rides from white people. And I still can't figure out why they would pick up four <laughs> black guys standing on the highway, but they would. Truck drivers would pick us up sometimes. I remember my first excursion to Winston-Salem with the guys and we were walking down whatever street it was and we were passing a store and I said, hey guys, let's go in here. And Bob said, Jimbo, grab me on, you can't go. And I said, what do you mean? I'm from New York, I can go anywhere I want. And through osmosis, the conditioning started to take place. That situation kind of pulled me back to say, I'm not able to do whatever I want here. But Butch and Bob and Smitty became more enlightened. They became more entitled. Pretty soon they were saying, Jimbo, let's go here. And my question would be, can we go in there? But over time, it balanced out. So there were situations where they would educate me as to the behavior in the South I was not aware of because they were from the South. They all went to black schools their whole life. They had never gone to school with a white person. I had never gone to school without a white person. So the whole impact on me was different than the impact on them. I was accustomed to white people. They were not. They did not socialize. They did not go to dances. They couldn't even go to the same movie. They had to sit upstairs or downstairs, whatever was segmented off. They couldn't eat at the lunch counter. They couldn't try on clothes in the store. I could do all that up in the North. So there was a conditioning that took place with all of us. I helped them feel more entitled, greater self-esteem as men. And they helped curb mine a little bit. But when I got back to New York, I regrouped. But the conditioning to some of our white classmates was critically important. My roommate, Danny Cooper, I wish I could find him now. He was like a perfect roommate for me. We used to sit and talk as if we were blood brothers. Even though we weren't brothers on the skin, we were brothers in spirit and in soul. And if Danny gets to see this, I wish you well, Danny. You were a great roommate at the time. And back then there were four of us in the quadrant. I mean, four rooms in the quadrant and two roommates. So there were eight of us in the quadrant. There were six, two, four, six, seven black guys and me in my quadrant. But they were all seemed like good guys. A couple of them had mm -hmm. attitudes, though. I could tell they didn't like being there, but they never said a cross word to me. Sometimes I wondered, did they even like me using the bathroom? But I didn't care. I also found out the ladies who used to take care of the rooms, which was amazing to me, that you had maid service. I couldn't believe that. I don't have to make <laughs> up my bed. Somebody empties my garbage. But they were nice, and I would talk to them. When they would come in, they'd say, Jim, it's so good to see you. It's so good to have that conversation with people. So it was a rude awakening for some people, but a great awakening for most mm -hmm. people. As some of the people went on years later, I'm sure the impact of seeing the four of us there gave them an understanding when situations took place in their adult lives with their children, with their children having black friends, they could understand that it wasn't odd, it was natural. I come from a training and a teaching background. My mother, Ophelia DeVore, was her name. When she went to Bogue School of Modeling, she didn't discuss whether she was black or white. She just went to Bogue School of Modeling. Then when she left Bogue School of Modeling, she would come back to us black people. When I got married, my wife was very fair-skinned. So when I would go someplace with my wife and my mother, they'd say, oh, Ophelia DeVore, how are you? And that's your daughter? She'd say, no, the black guy is my son. Because people were still in a mentality you had to look a certain way. It's important for everybody to have somebody who cares about them in their ear. These young athletes at Wake Forest need you in their ear. 
not about football, because there are enough people there about what it's like being a man of color from the South, from a segregated environment, because it was still segregated when you were in high school, wasn't it? No, no, we had uh, the high school I went to, we were, okay. it was fully integrated. It was 33% oh. Native American, 33% white and 33 percent black that was kind of well, here, you know kind of well, you just heard a black guy making an assumption let me on something um but some of these young athletes who come there they need to hear what it was like for you 15 yeah. 20 years ago when you came as a player what was the condition what's the condition for you now what opportunities are available to them how do they have to prepare themselves and how do they have to conduct themselves what's still part of the game plan to be a good athlete and a good professional. What it mm -hmm. took for you to be an outstanding football player, you're still required the same way. <laughs> yeah. Now, you you got to run fast and yeah. hit hard. Um, <laughs> pardon me? No, I was just saying, I, I, I would like to, uh, what you were saying was correct. And I wanted to jump into, for you, life after college and talk about uh, if I'm not mistaken, talk about DeVore Carter Communications and some of the things that okay. you've worked on and, and, and what you guys do, uh, just to kind of share with Deacon Nation what you have going on. What I learned over time was what my mother did with the charm school mm -hmm. was less about charm and more about relationship building. The whole concept of charm is how you treat people based on how you conduct yourself. And what we do with DeVore Carter Communications, we do coaching and training about to enhance your sales skills because everybody's selling. This video is a selling tool. Interviewing is a selling tool. Taking a test and doing well is a tool that you present to somebody to show your abilities. So in DeVore Carter Communications, we do training and coaching and we use charm as our tool. The word charm is spelled C-H-A-R-M and it starts with the letter C. The C stands for civil. If I want a relationship with Kevin Smith, we call you a linebacker at home. <laughs> if I want a relationship with you, I need to be civil because you will not accept a relationship with me if I'm not civil with you. So that starts the word charm, the letter C. And then we move to the letter H. You have to be honest with people, but people have to be taught how honesty is the way to go. You don't have to remember what you said. If you're honest, it'll always be the same thing. If you make up something, if you're untruthful, people will remember that and you always get caught. All the liars get caught. So it goes from civil to honest. And then it moves to A. You need to be authentic. I'm the charm school guy. That's the only game I got to say. I'm authentic about it. I want to be nice to people. I want people to feel good about me. I want them to feel better when I'm in their presence. And I'm authentic about it. I'm not trying to act nice. I'm authentic about being nice. I want to be complimentary. I want to be sorted, be supportive. And I also want to be somebody that you can feel is trustworthy. So you go from civil to honest to authentic. And then it moves to respectful, R for respectful. You've got to be respectful of people. You call people names. Look at what happened in the NBA right now with Draymond Green and Jordan Poole. Mm -hmm. It's hard once you hit a man in the face for him to like you again. Even though Jordan <laughs> Poole just signed a $140 million contract. Kevin, yeah. you and I need a $140 million contract. It's not going to make him forget that punch in the face, yeah. which now is on film. Everybody, his mom, his dad, his friends, poor Jordan Poole. But Draymond Green needed me in there to say, Draymond, you're a great athlete. You're a great man. You got to be charming. You got to be respectful. You can't punch somebody in the face. You just can't do it. And the guy told me, well, you get in fights. I got in fights growing up. Won a couple. 
I lost one, but <laughs> since we were throwing fists, I could go along with that one. Because <laughs> we were both throwing fists, but if somebody mm. sucker punched me, guy hit me in the chest one time, he was three years older than me, I still have bad feelings about him 70, 55 years later. But then M in the word charm, is memorable. People got to remember you for something and you need to give them something good. So in the charm business, in the DeVore Carter communication business, we want to coach and train people how to use those related relationship building skills to make somebody say, I want you with me. How you go to somebody and you demonstrate to them and speak to them what your value is, the value you bring to them. When people look at Deke to Deke, they need to see the value that Wake Forest brings to its student body, but also brings to the community. So DeVore Carter Communications is about selling charm and not as being cute, which we want you to be cute, but as a selling tool because everybody's selling all the time, either up or off. Either somebody wants to buy what you're selling or they don't want to buy it. And it starts with charm being civil. When you're not civil, they don't hear the logic of what you're bringing to them. And so that kind of leads to uh, my final question for you is what piece of advice would you have for Wake Forest student athletes right now? If you had an opportunity, which this many of them watch this platform, mm -hmm. they watch the show. So what advice would you have for a current student athlete at Wake Forest that you would like to share with them considering your wealth of knowledge and experience and exposure? If they're a student athlete at Wake Forest, it's a short period in their life. It's a developmental period where they'll learn how to communicate with all type of people from all walks of life, from all areas, all races, and they need to get the full value of this experience. They need to talk to people like you and me who can tell them about the old days and it can also tell them about what's different, but what is the same? Something, you know, basic math is the same. I don't care how much new math they come up with. Two plus two still works if you're trying to figure out something when you're making change. They need to understand that we need to have groups where synergy is the saving grace, whether it's on the football field or in the boardroom. Synergy means relationships. The whole is greater than the sum of its individual parts. Kevin Smith by himself is not nearly as powerful as the Deacon team. When you're in a room with the Deacon team, you're much more powerful because that's how synergy works. And you learn how to join with synergy when you treat people in a way and they have to get accustomed to that. The football life is very short. It's short in the NFL. It's short at Wake Forest. The NBA, NBA life is very short in Wake Forest and also in the NBA, but baseball, short life is short in sports. The physical body doesn't go long, but the brain goes a long time. I've been talking like this for 77 years, but I could only play ball for about 17 <laughs> years of them. Yeah. The other 60 years required me to have other skill sets. <clears throat> they need to knock on your door and say, Kevin Smith, tell me what it was like for you at Wake Forest. Tell me what's different now. Tell me what we should be preparing ourselves for the next life, because not everybody's going to the league, Kevin. Very few people, I don't know what percent it is. I know you know it. Now, at a major university, let's just say football, what's the scholarship group? 80 players or 70 so players? So, at a, at a, like, at, let's just say at Wake Forest, you have 85 uh, scholarship athletes, and you may have 20 uh, additional preferred, like a preferred walk on spot. So, basically, so that's, 100, that's 100 people. Out yeah. of that 100 football players, 
if 10 see, see the NFL for any length of time for a big contract, it's going to be a gift. Yeah, that's that's almost unheard of. You might have one. But 90 yeah. of them are going to have to live out the rest of their life. Pardon me? Yep. No, 90 of them will have just, to yeah. go the rest of their life. They're going to have to be good citizens, good parents, good co-workers. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, they have to be good people for themselves. And the only way you can embrace goodness is be exposed to it. They need once again, they need to be knocking on your door saying, Brother Smith, Coach Smith, former player Smith, is there anything you can tell me after my football life, after my basketball life? What have you learned in your political exposure, in your athletic exposure, in your parental exposure that can help me? And you can go on for hours with that, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, especially with twins, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Carter, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your story, your journey with Deacon Nation and really give us some more detail to the role that you played. And again, you didn't just integrate Wake Forest. You inter you're a part of integrating intercollegiate athletics in the entire South. And so as someone that has benefited from that opportunity, I want to say thank you. And I appreciate what you have done and you've done it with such a uh, high level of grace and class and dignity. And I, and I really, really appreciate that. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to have gotten to know you and your family and your, your wonderful wife. It has just been a, a, a real blessing for me. And I appreciate you uh, doing that. The same to you, Kevin. Thank you for this platform to talk about Wake, myself, my family and the good people who were there with me many years ago. And I'd like everybody at Wake to read up on Dr. Tribble's history and know what really spearheaded what Wake Forest is today.